0: Hello, everyone. My name is Marty Duran. I'm here on behalf of the Great Commission Collective. I'm the Director of Communications for GCC, and I'll be joined in a moment by Dave Harvey, the President of GCC, and several of our pastors, as we have what we think is a crucial conversation about justice and race and the gospel in America. This comes on the heels of Mr. Ahmed Arbery being killed in Brunswick, Georgia, but it's certainly a broader conversation than that. And so we want to hear uh, what people have to say. We think this is an important time. So I want to kick it over now to uh, Dave Harvey, the president of GCC, and he'll be the host for the rest of this conversation. Thanks, Marty. I'm I'm both excited and Sobered to be having this conversation, I think I think I'm sobered appropriately by our topic, but I'm I'm really excited about the guests that are joining us for the conversation. So, Marty, you and I are on staff of the Great Commission Collective. That's a that's a family of churches that exists to plant churches and strengthen leaders. And joining us today are three church planters from our network, uh, three guys who have graciously agreed to accept our invitation to, to have this conversation. So we have, we have Darren Greenfield, and Darren is married to Adina, and he leads Christ Center Church in West Philadelphia, planted last fall. So Philadelphia, I, I spent 30 years in Philadelphia, raised all my kids in Philadelphia. So Darren's location is close to my heart. Um, Stephen Love as well. Stephen is married to Mandy. He he's gonna be planting Redemption City in South Bend, Indiana this coming fall, God willing. And uh and John Kelly. John is married to Danielle, and John planted Chicago West Bible Church, and that was back in the spring of 2016. And it's it's just great to have him here as well. In fact, John, did I hear that you are Graduating this month from a graduate degree at Wheaton?
1: Oh no, I just did by God's grace, man. I ran out of that class so fast. I bet. Man, Congratulations. My, my wife's the real MVP though. As soon as they hand me whatever they're going to give me, I'm going to turn around and hand it right to her. <laughs> she, she's the MVP for sure.
0: Well, very appropriate. Um, and thanks for agreeing to be with us today. In fact, for all of you guys, uh, just a, a, a huge thank you for uh, agreeing to have this conversation together and, and talk about these things. So, as Marty mentioned, we are here to talk about the death of Ahmad Arbery. And for our listeners, we are a, a group of men who are united by Christ. We share the same network but our skin color is different. And in the United States, that's never been a small distinction. So um, John, let me, let me start with you and then I'll, I'll have Darren and Steven jump in. But help, help those who are listening understand, what does a situation like the death of Ahmad Arbery represent to many African-Americans? Or if you want to, you can personalize it. What does it represent to you?
1: Yeah, thanks for having us, Dave, and um, yeah, there's there's so many um, emotions, so many thoughts. Um, just to kind of give you a quick context, I just came back from Philadelphia, my family's from Philly, I was out there spending time with my mother, my grandmom's not doing too too good, so I was out there for about 17 days, I just got back Monday. My mother lives out in um, Media, PA, and where she's at in media, it's kind of like a, a, a upper middle class, like a a kind of upscale, nice area, a lot of space, a lot of land, not a nice, not a uh, nice houses. Um, In the years she's been there, I've probably seen maybe two black folks, maybe at the Acme grocery store or something, but it's just, she's up there and it's cool. I don't really think about much. And so while we were up there, uh, while I was there and, you know, we're kind of in the house and stuff. I just wanted to go for a jog every day. I was like, man, maybe I should just get out and go for a jog. And I literally every day was wrestling with if I should go for a jog or not. And the only thing that was stopping me was I felt uncomfortable running through her neighborhood black. Like that's only, I mean, I literally was wrestling with it every day. I mean, my mom talked about it every day. In fact, one day she was like, Hey, I'll just go for you. We can can go for a walk. Cause she has trails around there. I was like, man, God forbid, I'm running through the trail and like, you know, a white woman's coming through and she thinks I'm going to attack her. Like, I just, like, this is what I was thinking. And literally, like, probably like a couple days into it, I look through, you know, Instagram or Twitter or something and I see the video of mm-hmm. the shooting. And the first thing it evoked in me was just obviously just a sense of immense grief. Um, because everyone involved, their life has just changed. Those who pulled the trigger and the, the person who was shot, there's, there's no winners in the situation. Nobody, nobody won in this situation there's no winners that's what sin does it attacks everybody but then the second thing was that came to my mind was I knew I wasn't crazy like I knew me thinking about not running like I don't even run in my own neighborhood and that, for that reason and I don't live in a bad neighborhood I live in a pretty diverse neighborhood but I I just feel uncomfortable I know that sounds crazy I know that like some people is like what why would you even? that doesn't even cross my mind but it does for me, like, I probably will never run in my neighborhood. If I, Whenever I run, I, I drive over to the track that's close by in River Forest, a little suburban neighborhood, and I'll jog around the track, but I don't feel comfortable. Danielle jogs, you know, um, but I, as a Black man, don't feel jo- comfortable jogging in my own neighborhood, and it's, it's it's for the reason of, um, you know, the perception that sometimes, not in everyone, but there's a perception sometimes that that people, when you see someone running at you, you know a black male. For some people, that's a threat, and they they it, they think more of it than it should be. And to me, it's just not worth the risk. And and jogging to me, um, is is in another is in a category of many things I don't do because I'm black. I consider my skin color a lot of times when people invite me over to dinner in certain environments, I'm like, man, I'm not driving over there by myself. I think the only black hoodie I've worn the last 10 years was my GCC hoodie. I will never, I don't wear black hoodies. I just don't do it. I wore the GCC hoodie because it's thin and it fits under my jacket, but I would never run out at night with that black GCC hoodie on. Mm. I just don't, a black man, black hoodie night that don't work for me. And so I know that that doesn't cross a lot of people's minds but th- when i saw the, the video of that young man being shot it evoked a hurt for his family a hurt for those who pulled the trigger a hurt for the whole situation and then it also because i was literally wrestling with jogging every day for about a week and i didn't want to jog for that reason it was like see that's why i don't jog you know and so that's for me personally, that's just kind of the raw, just being honest emotions that I've processed right away when I saw, um, unfortunately, the video of that shooting.
0: Yeah, it's it's point of reference that a white person never even has to consider um, or rarely has to consider when they think about going out to jog. And that's really helpful. Just to have you bring us into your mind um, on on the experience of something as simple as jogging, and uh, and the kind of things that you have to go through. Stephen, uh, anything to add? Darren, anything to add? There.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I can if I can jump in there, and sort of piggyback off what uh, Brother John said. Let me let me say this first, Dave. I think that you know, um, you know, black folks are not monolithic. You know, in that we don't all think the exact same about every single topic on the map, right? And so you could take, you know, myself, Darren, and John, and we probably have three different upbringings. Our political views are probably nuanced at certain areas. And so a lot of times the misconception is if you take one black person, you have them all, and you have all of their thinking, which is just not the case. However, that being said, there is sort of a common thread that I believe runs through the Black community when situations like Ahmaud Arbery come up. And I think that common thread runs through it is because it's so close to us. Um, You heard, you know, John's story and his testimony. I'm sure Darren has something to say. Uh, Myself, where I've been in situations where solely based on the fact that I'm a Black man, my life was at risk. Mm -hmm. And either it's us personally, or it's a uncle, or it's a grandfather. It's so close to us that when we see a video like that, which was tragic, we say to ourselves, that hits close to home. You know, I, I, I was close to that situation three weeks ago, or my uncle dealt with something like that two years ago. or So that, that common thread of being targeted simply because we are. Uh, black men in particular, I think that hits very close to home. And that's sort of the common thread that runs throughout the Black community. You won't talk to too many Black folks who who don't have a common experience of being in a situation where they they are thinking a thousand different thoughts about what and how their Black skin is perceived by other folks that are around them. So, you know, I echo what John is saying. I, I fear that. And I had a similar experience in Florida. We could talk about that later. But um, when that happens, so you you sort of see the black community like that has that has close to home. That's that's very familiar to us in our in our narrative throughout throughout the history of this country.
0: Darren, let me uh, let me tell you about a conversation I just had with someone because I want to I want to get you interacting with it a little bit. I, I I was talking the other night to an African American man, and he told me that when when a white person hears a racist comment or a white person hears the, the N-word. They, they may oppose it because it's inappropriate or crass or tasteless or, you know, or, or offensive at some level. But, but when, a, when a Black man or woman hears that, it immediately constitutes a level of threat. Uh, and this is, you know, to use a military analogy, you know, the, the threat level shoots immediately up to DEFCON 2 or DEFCON 1. Um, is that a, a reasonable way to think about how a black man or a black woman ex- experiences those things? Can you talk about that for a minute, Darren?
3: Um, yeah, for us as African-Americans, a situation like Ahmad Arbery is a recurring uh, nightmare of historical trauma. Um, which means that we as African-Americans, many of us do not have the privilege of seeing racial-based violence as an isolated incident. Because what it does is it opens up all the wounds of our past, that some of us are only two, three, four generations from our grandparents, our great-grandparents, coming off of slave plantations, um, it um, opens up the wounds of prior shootings that have happened in near regions of times. And this nightmare is not something that we have to go to sleep to, uh, 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 to experience, it's something that we experience while our, while our eyes are open. And, and the greatest fear of that is that it will become normalized. That, that a, a black man or a black woman being victimized by vigilantes or police Uh, the neighborhood watch would just be another byproduct of living in America. And and a lot of people don't understand this when you, we feel as though, I feel as though African Americans are collateral damage to the American dream. And if you know anything about the term collateral damage, it comes from Vietnam uh, where it describes all the innocent people and all the innocent property that was killed uh, and murdered and victimized during the war. And I feel like that, that's what we are. And so when we hear about racial things, when we see stories, uh, when we go through these tragedies like this, it's not just this incident. It's everything that we've been through. It's every death that we've experienced. It's Stephen's incidents. It's John's fear. And it's all wrapped up in one, and the challenging part about it is sometimes we feel like whether we're in the church or outside of the church, that we have to bear and carry this by ourselves. Because a lot of people will empathize with us, but a lot of people will not get behind us to help actually bring some change uh, to what's going on uh, in the world and how we're being harmed and victimized uh, because of our skin color.
0: It's. It sounds like one of the reasons why, and and I'm inferring this. So tell me if it's incorrect. One of the reasons why an African American and a white person would would track these things differently is because of the relative experience, the body of experience. So when when injustices like like this take place. Um, a white person would interpret it a certain way and an African-American another way. So the body of experience would be one reason for the difference in that interpretation. Are there other reasons as well? Can I touch
1: on that for a second Um, real quick? You know, I have this conversation so much with so many of my dear um, white brothers and sisters, and I've been on a lot of different panels and different conversations, and I've concluded obviously the thing that runs through the the thread is the topic we're talking about is the impact of sin. And we all have the flesh and weaknesses. We all have prejudices. Blacks do, Hispanics, Asians, whites, we all have weak spots and blind spots, but you touched on the key word that I found to be true. And the thing that I think is that that makes us see things completely different and be on two different terms is proximity. So that's experience. Um you just it just doesn't land the same way if you're not impacted by it there's stuff like there's stuff that's on God's heart, for example, I was talking to someone recently about sex trafficking, and um Chicago's a leading city in that. I don't think about that that much. I should as a pastor, and I do talk about it, but it just lands different for me because it's not something that I interact with every day. Prison stuff is stuff I interact with every day. That's fresh to me. To other people, it's not. That's not their experience. They may not get excited about prison reform the way I do, and I could talk about certain things. I think it's the same thing when it comes to issue of race. There's, there's, the experiences that people have had with law enforcement in their setting is not the same as some have had in their in other settings. And then the second thing, so experience and proximity is one. And the second thing in their intestine is so crucial. Um, blacks and whites just don't see history the same way. I've just come to that conclusion. We don't read the history books the same way. We don't. The thing we, it, it, it's, it's, uh there is a sense of, and I, I, I I'm cautious to use the word privilege because I know that's often seen as equal with the word racist, and it's not but there's a freedom that some of my white brethren have that they just don't have to think about certain things. Um, They don't have to consider stuff. Blacks, um, we see everything in light of historical context. Most of our white brethren um, and others would see it as, I see isolated incidents. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. I, I was sitting for a couple of years, and it's no shade to the SBC, but our church has a partnership with SBC. I'm really good tight with NAM and Kevin Azell, And I was sitting on a, the African-American leadership board where we give recommendations and stuff. And one of the things that it came up was everyone that was going through Southern, when you go through Southern, you get the introductory about the SBC and they totally skip over the fact that it was founded upon guys who didn't want to give up slavery. Like that's just the reality. The Southern Baptist Convention was founded upon White ministers who didn't want to let go of slavery and started their own thing. And they skip over that. And so, but then they're like, hey, can you, why is it that n- many minorities don't want to join the SBC? And it's like, well, you won't even acknowledge your origins. And there's a way where maybe in, in class you can acknowledge your origins, but we can redeem it. But you can't redeem something you won't acknowledge. And so, if we don't even look at the, the founding of an organization the same way, you're willing to skip over that part. Blacks aren't. Jews just aren't going to skip over uh, a origin of an entity in Germany that was founded during the time of the Holocaust. Even if it's doing great things now, Jews are going to see certain things in light of the historical narrative of being in Germany. And I think it's the same way for minorities in America is that we, we, we see everything in light of context. And our experiences also allow us to see things that doesn't make YouTube, doesn't make the internet on a daily, weekly basis. I've seen uh, an mod uh, I've seen a situation like that multiple times in the last six months, just in Austin, where mm-hmm. it's just like, yo, you didn't have to do that to that man like that, or you didn't have to slam that woman on the floor like that in a grocery All she was, you know, yeah, it was an argument, but y'all could have de-escalated it totally different. We see this stuff regularly. It's just that um, social media has made it more present to the home viewer. And so those are the two things I would just say, I don't want to ramble, but I would say the big gap is we have different experiences and we have to learn to listen to say, hey, well, maybe, you know, your experience is not my experience. Help me to understand and enter into each other's world. I do think if we were more unified and there was more friendships like that, we would have um, more experiences that can cross over and learn and we realize we have more in common. So those are the two things I would just say um, that really just hinders conversation is lack of experience and um, the way we perceive history. Two pithy sayings came to mind, John, as we were talking.
2: One, one pithy saying is history is written by winners, right? The, the winners write history. And so when you think about an oppressed people group in this nation, you know, who is writing the history books? Um, it, it's not the, you know, sort of the descendants of slaves who are writing and saying, Hey, we need to realize what's taking place. Uh, but it's those systems and, um, uh, organizations and corporations who were built on the backs of slaves that are writing it. But at the same time, as, as uh, Wendell Berry says in his book, The Hidden Wound, he says the Black folks and the white folks are, are, com- have this wound of slavery, so mm-hmm. nobody won from slavery. Like, I know you think because of material wealth that white people want, but his, his premise is nobody, they didn't they didn't win because they can't realize this wound that they have from oppressing the people made in the image of God. And the second thing he's saying is, you know, if you don't recognize history, you're doomed to repeat it. And I think that's what's taking place, is that from a failure to realize and be honest about how this country was founded and progressed and perpetuated, we're repeating history every day. We're repeating it with Ahmaud Arbery. And we'll continue to repeat it until you know these conversations happen both inside and outside the church, and honesty is brought to the table.
1: You know, one thing I want to mention real quick, um, Dave, and I want to kind of piggyback on that is there has to be so much grace for us, all of us in this country, because um, we are truly suffering for the sins of our forefathers. The reality is, white and black men and women. Uh, hispanic latinos and i want to include hispanics because you see a lot of the same things happening in hispanic communities as well um and uh, but there's a reality that we have walked into um, a home in which there was situations playing out before we got there and we're left to clean up the mess and so I, i think it's dangerous sometimes to to sweep all whites under the bus or all blacks under the bus or use generalizations i think the reality is we should just work together and acknowledge the reality of what's happening, um, address it, reject it, and look for systems and structures that could bring healing and promote unity. but looking the other way and acting like it hasn't happened has hindered so much and and uh I think um many of us uh that would that would um be in a minority group have often looked for our brethren in the church to be a voice along with us to just say, hey, this is not just our our problem, but this is our problem. And it doesn't mean that our white brethren or Asian brethren, whoever, is racist in any way. We're just acknowledging that we live in a country that has a history that has put all of us on a certain trajectory and has woven many tendencies into so many fabrics and systems and mentalities. And, uh, and, and so I just think we all need grace. There has to be so much grace and love for each other, a, a sense of grace that that we inherited a problem. We didn't, we, you know, this generation, I would say, at least these generations. And um, each generation has, has to me, hasn't done um, well enough and I blame the church on addressing the problem.
3: Yeah, um, b- before we move on, I just, I agree with uh, both with John and in- Uh, Stephen F. said, and I just want to put some numbers to one of the things that John said and one of the things that you're talking about, Dave. There is a young lady by the name of Corey Edwards who wrote a book uh, called The Elusive Dream, uh, The Power of Race and Interracial Churches. And uh, she's a researcher and she researches this this statistic of how Black uh, people and white people think of their identity different. And she says that white people do not think of their identity when they're describing themselves until the 14th characteristic, that they're up there 13 other things that come before them uh, uh, notifying or identifying their race. She says African-American people, the average is third. That is the third thing that we identify is our race. And the first two things would be uh, a gender or sexuality and those swap and then right after that comes race, right? Gender, religion, sexuality, those swap and then race comes behind. And I think that there's a big reason for that Um, and why we experience and we interpret things differently. And it's as simple as this, the victim is always going to interpret things different than the witness. Right? The oppressed is always going to interpret things different than the oppressor or those who are beneficiaries uh, beneficiaries of the system of oppression. Right, And so I agree with John, and, um, and I agree with grace. There's no way as a believer I cannot agree with grace. Uh, but where I am in my heart right now on this issue of race is if we've inherited something, how do we define how grace functions so we don't go from people who have inherited something to people who are perpetuating something if we leave this big wide open pool to say, man, I want to, I, 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 like if I, I think that we're, we're using a lot of our words that are really true. We have a lot of grace. We have a lot of love for each other. Love is an action. Grace is something that we receive and it changes the way we live. So when is the institution, uh, when is the slavery racism and everything going to be changed first inside of the church? Right? Like this is a long history. This is almost 20 plus bodies that we only know of within the last four to five years. How much before we start to ramp up and say, all right, guys, let's get some terminology laid down. Let's start to come together as the church. Let's push these. And the reason why I'm so adamant with that is because I've seen us do it in other areas. I've seen the church work hard and actually pinpoint some things to go after in other areas, and so I would say that's where my heart is on that right now.
1: Yeah, that's good. And let me just say real quick, Dan, One of the reasons why I mentioned grace is because I've seen I've seen um, in our in our community, in the black community, um, when situations happen like this, especially like on the ground in Austin, people who may not think as critically as you and I do, um, the first thing they go to is white people's racist. Mm-hmm. They don't even know Dave Harvey, Dave mm-hmm. Harvey's racist. It's like, how do you just land at that? Because it's like, see white people and then the, those generalizations, is, it, it, it kills conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it kills the opportunity to even to work together. The first thing is be like, see white people, right? It's not white people, all right? There is a sense that there's something running through that, but understand that Dave is walking into this just as much as anybody else is. Now he may have a lack of awareness, He may have a lack of enthusiasm because the freedom that he has of not having that skin colors allows him to focus on other things and maybe not even think about jogging. And so that's where I just say we have to start because there comes a frustration in the black community is why doesn't Dave and Marty feel the way that I do. And if we don't start with the context of of understanding, well, there needs to be a little grace for Dave and Marty because they're inheriting this too, but they, they have a lack of awareness. And so that's how I'm using grace, not as in being passive, but is, is understanding that everybody involved, we have to start with a sense of that, because if we don't, people just start teeing off on each other, and it kills conversation, and it kills the opportunity to even um, come together and have conversations like this, and it's, it, it incites the flesh,
0: and it doesn't help the, the spirit and it seems like the the panel you were on john with the uh southern baptists is a good example of that because of the way they they were kind of trying to define this or not even acknowledge it and yet it seems like and tell me if i'm i'm correct but it seems like over the last few years there's been a lot more clarity and honesty about the history of the Southern Baptists among the Southern Baptists, and that they're kind of outing themselves now in a whole new way, which is very refreshing. But that's because it seems like there was a group of men and women behind the scenes that were, were showing them grace.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I would agree.
0: So, uh, Darren, just getting back to something you were saying earlier about how, how race is the 13th thing on the list um, there is a man that I deeply respect, and uh, his name is is Asa, and he is our adopted uh, African-American son. And uh, he has at least, uh, he has multiple stories of being pulled over for reasons that were not made clear to him, having his car searched and 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 living life now as if these experiences are some kind of undefined tax he has to pay uh two years ago we went car shopping and and i i found what i thought was a good option i said hey bud you know i what do you think about this one and he immediately killed the idea and i said well, well what's wrong and he just he just said dad a black man can't drive a car with that kind of color it just screams hey look here's a black guy and and my immediate thought in that moment was i have never in my life bought a car where i had to consider the color of the car because of the color of my skin never and 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 the mentality was you know it goes back to that kind of threat level he he's thinking about how do i minimize the threat level and, uh, you know, that was grievous to me. Uh, and uh, so, so could you guys, Stephen, maybe may, maybe we'll start with you, Stephen, because you mentioned, you made a passing comment about uh, an experience you had down in Florida where you felt like you were under threat. And It seems like these categories are ones that you guys understand far better than, than I would. So So talk to us about it.
2: Yeah, and that's what, you know, the word, the word privilege has been thrown around so much in recent, you know, commentary that it's almost lost any type of meaning. And people immediately hear the word either privilege or white privilege, they sort of step back and automatically get defensive. When I, when I speak of privilege, I mean making decisions and living life without having this added burden of thinking about your race or your skin color. So buying a car. And jogging with a hoodie on, or walking into a store with a hoodie on, or walking too close to another person, uh, or getting a job—these things you can do without being hindered by your your race or skin color. And so, for instance, the instance that happened to me in Florida when I was in seminary, uh, very similar to John. I mean, I uh, I was going for a run, and uh, you know, a truck was following me, and so I stopped, and the truck pulled up, and. Two white guys were in the front, and I was all by myself in a predominantly white area. And uh, you know, they sort of yelled out, "What are you doing here?" And immediately, I know what the question represented. Right? What are What are you doing here? And and so um, I wrote when I put that that example on Facebook, I said that in that moment I had to disarm my black skin, And, and this is something that John alluded to earlier. And that a lot of people will perceive my black skin as a threat, right? Black man here, nothing else. They don't know me. They don't know where I'm going, where I'm coming from. They don't know I'm in seminary. (laughs) They don't know I'm a pastor. They see a black man and immediately they say his black skin is a threat. It's a weapon. And so, you know, I had to do what countless black men before me have had to do and probably after me will have to do. And that is sort of disarming, And that is sort of being what I call being extra, you know, just you you have to be extra exuberant or extra smiley or extra friendly in that moment to say, man, I'm just out here running, man. I'm not a threat to you guys. I'm just doing what countless other people do every single day of the week. And um, in that moment, they sort of they didn't say anything. They just glared at me and drove off. But my life in that moment was threatened. Uh, for nothing else than for going for a jog while being, being a Black man. And so those type of considerations, when I speak of privilege, thinking about, should I go jogging in this neighborhood today? In this perfectly good neighborhood, you know, not a high crime neighborhood. That is something that many of our dear white brothers and sisters, they don't even think twice about. It doesn't cross their mind. And to have an illustration like John gave, that is such a foreign concept to have to navigate so many thoughts and considerations before doing a
1: multiplicity
2: of things as a
1: Black human being. Let me add something to that real quick, and this might be helpful too. I, I'm positive, I'm absolutely positive, if a large portion of my mom's neighborhood, that nice neighborhood, was Black, I'd have been, I'd have been ran for a jock. Um one of the challenges, and I think this is why it's hard, and, and and again, this doesn't mean anyone's racist or anything, but one of the things I think is a challenge is um blacks are such a small percentage of Americans, yet that small percentage, if you're if you're black, um you're gonna have to function in white space, period. If you're white, you don't have to function, you can go from pre from pre-K from kindergarten to PhD and never interact with black culture as a white person. You can't make it through first grade and not read a textbook that forces you to learn about white culture. And so you you it don't matter if you go to a church plant network. Name one large church black church plant network. I can't think of any. Maybe they're out there, but I'm just saying like they're not as prevalent. You think of Acts 29, Great Commission Collective, NAM. Think, name one large Black seminary that has predominantly Black students. Maybe there's some out there, there, and there probably are many out there. So the point I'm just trying to make is, is that you're always, whether you're going to college, um, even if you're in an all-Black high school, the textbooks you're learning, you're always learning about white history. You're always in white space. You're always learning to read about Shakespeare. You're learning to read about all, everything Western. and And so you're more conscious of your own identity. Matt Chandler one time was talking, um, and you would get this, Dave, because you know Philly, he's really good friends with Eric Mason. Um, he's very close with Epiphany Fellowship there. I mean, uh, almost everybody in Epiphany knows Matt Chandler like they're his pastor because he's so close there. And uh, he talked about one time when he was in Philadelphia, he went through Reading Terminal downtown. And so, Reading Terminal has all the um, food spots and fresh produce. And he said he when he was going through there, within five seconds, he realized he was the only white guy there. And he talked about how that was the first time in his life where he became so self-conscious of his skin color. And immediately he said he noticed how the way he conversated changed, um, the way he interacted with people changed, the way his radar and alert system changed. He was very honest. He was just like, man, the way I approached going to get something to eat immediately changed when I realized I was the only white guy in the midst of hundreds of people who were black. And, And what he was wrestling with was functioning in black space. And it made him think about his identity more, his skin color more, things that he probably shouldn't have to think about. And it's the same way, I would say, for minorities is that we often have to go to schools, read books, be in environments where we're often majority white space. And and for some, like you, that's that's welcome um, and that's great. But there are people who have uh, stigmas and prejudices and views minority a certain way. And it forces us to also have to think about our our, our ethnic identity a little bit harder and a little bit more and be a little bit more self-aware of our environment um, for that reason. So I just wanted to bring that up to piggyback on that. Um, what you were saying, Stephen, is because there, there is a reality that um, there's two different contexts and we, we, the, the, the tension arise um, or seems to arise from, from not fully engaging and embracing both contexts, if that makes sense.
0: Let me um, let me tell you guys about kind of how how I was processing this as a as a white person, and then get you guys interacting with us a little bit. That's great, thinking, Dave, Because
1: I was going to ask that. I was going to ask that. Like, and so much is on us, but I would
0: love to hear your thoughts about. Well, all that. I'm thinking specifically about what happened with Almad Arbery, and and I don't feel like I have a well developed way to even understand that i haven't experienced um the kind of experiences that you men had where i've been targeted in some way or misunderstood immediately misunderstood or immediately judged because of my skin color i, I do know that when something like that goes down though I, I begin thinking okay what what am i supposed to do like i'm, I'm a white guy i i have a vested interest in this I, I want to identify um, but I have no idea what to do and and you know I just, I reached out to some of my, my African- American friends, hey you know what do I do and and, and some of that was really helpful uh, Some of that resulted in th- th- this conversation um, but I, I, I'd like you guys to to, to speak more specifically to um, what can a white brother or sister in Christ do beyond just grieving these situations? Where do we channel the desire to to, to make a difference here? You know, what are some of the things that, that we can do? I would say if you see
1: name it. I would say if you see it, name it and be as vocal about it as, as you are, as, as would be about any other topic. And and uh I just think that the problem is there's a there's there's a um there's there's movement towards a lament, but not a vocal calling out and using that space to be able to say something. And I think to to, to, to grieve with a brother but then not name that and call that out really wounds that that person, that individual, you know, and and we would get this as pastors, right? If there's a victim of something in our church and we weep with them, but then we're like, yeah, but I don't want to say anything about that because it's too controversial for me. I don't want to get drawn into that. Then, I mean, are you really loving that person? And so I think um, I would say this is a, 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 a righteousness issue. It's not about social justice. There's no such thing as justice without righteousness. A demand for justice is a demand for righteousness and a calling out of something that's unjust, that's not righteous. We are kingdom people. We are citizens of heaven. We go by um, what's right, what's good, what's holy, what reflects the character of God. You know, I often say John the Baptist didn't get killed for preaching the gospel. He got killed for telling Herod that he was in sin and something wasn't right. And I think that to see um, our, our, our white brethren and sisters stand up and say, we won't tolerate this because it doesn't matter if it's white, Black, Chinese. We don't tolerate um, uh, prejudice and evil and any systemic, any kind of racism towards any ethnic group because that's just not what we do in the kingdom. And I think the disappointment has been on our side is sometimes to see how very few of um the Brethren has showed up to say that. And I'm encouraged by conversations like this because so many people I've seen have been like, you know, um, have been calling that out and have been creating not just dialogue. I think this is the first time I've actually seen more people moving from dialogue um, to actually naming stuff. About three years ago, there was this wave when everything was going on with Quan McDonald and some other um, police shootings. Man, there was just so many panels. I was getting tired of panels. It was like, yo, we talking too much, man. Like we we talking too much and ain't nobody saying anything, you know? It was just, and it was like, all right, well now that, that's over. But it seems that in this situation, at least what I've been seeing in social media and Facebook, there's been so many white brothers and sisters who have been vocal about this. And I don't think we should just be vocal on social media, but it should influence the way we vote. It should influence the way we talk about our elected officials, whether it be Obama or Trump. Um, it, it should it, it should be uh, impacting the way that we, we, we view the world holistically, not just our part and where we live and whatever our cocoon is, but how we actually now begin to interpret the world that we have a larger um, Uh, context now that we're entering into. And I think as long as there's a prophetic voice from our brothers and sisters, I I can't speak for everybody else who don't know Christ. I'm speaking specifically for those who profess to know Christ. I can't talk about those who don't have the Holy Spirit in them, but I'm talking about for those who profess to know Christ and claim to be citizens of heaven. We got to have each other's back on that. You know, this is a kingdom issue, man. This is every tribe, nation, and tongue. We don't tolerate that. I will say with integrity, I feel just as livid about that as if I would see a police officer unnecessarily shooting a white brother or or Asian sister. Like anything that would be ethnically motivated fumes me because that's evil and that's wrong. And so I just think to see that prophetic voice come up from the church would be encouraging. And not just um, stating it when it happens, but letting it influence how you see everything. And and I know I don't want to get on this topic. I don't want to get sidetracked. I don't want to go on this rant. But one of the things that has often happened, and I just want to put it out there, and this is not an indictment on anyone, but this is something that has often wounded um, the Black community in race conversations, is that our white brethren has often been, I mean, it influences their vote and, and how they communicate on abortion, as if Black pastors and Black people support abortion. I could tell you no one in my neighborhood invited Planned Parenthood into the neighborhood. They had no control over what stores come into their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And yet that's the example I'm talking about. There seems to be a safer zeal to be like, well, I vote Republican, or I voted for this person, or I'm vocal about this because I care about abortion. And yet the tone. And 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 when when pol- when police shooting's happening or some racism some systemic things are happening, the same zeal turns to be turned down. And we just tend to question, well, why is that?
3: Hmm. Yeah, Dave, I would uh I would say this. I would um go along with what John is saying, and um I think it gets right down to it before my white brothers and sisters can help solve this problem of racism. It gets to what Stephen was talking about. I think we have to take an honest look and be realist and ask them to solve what racism has done to their own heart, right? I think racism is one of the areas within the white evangelical church, and I've been in enough of them. I've talked to enough of leadership, helped churches work through issues like this. I think racism is one of these issues where we have to be flat out honest with and say a lot of the white evangelical church has allowed the world to disciple them to the world's definition of justice and race. That in a lot of what we do and a lot of, of, and and this is what it comes down to. I'm like John, been a part of the conversations, even been a part of the the, the naming it, but this is where it comes down to for me and my experience. When you realize how much you have to sacrifice, When I've worked along with churches that I love, churches that I've been a part of their staff, where we have broken off is when it says, okay, now you know how much you have to sacrifice to really get skin in this game. Are you going to do it or not? And a lot of the times with, with, I don't want to toss this P word around, but we have to, we have to, it's a real word, no matter how it's been watered down, no matter how much it's been overused, we have to realize that it's still a real word and a real concept. What privilege allows you to do is it allows you to change around what is convenient and not urgent. If a problem is not directly affecting me, if a problem is not in my everyday life, even if I have the deepest desire to be a part of it, one of the things that I am looking, I'm looking at my church, I'm looking at my family, I'm looking at my people, and I'm saying to myself, how can I get involved with that situation and not mess up what I have going on here? And I just think if we've been affected by sin, by America's sin of justice and racism, there's no way that we come to a solution um, and, and um, without uh, sacrificing something of our own. And one of the reasons why we need your help, I identify with your son Asa a lot. I wanted to jump in and I, and I, and I have to say this, the reason why I drive a, drive a Volkswagen is because I know that nine times out of 10 in a Volkswagen, I'm not gonna get pulled over. Right, And so there are a lot of African-American men. The reason why I need my white brothers and sisters to jump into this is because one of the things that I have to do and one of the things the people at my church have to do who have been in private white institutions so long, whether it be high school, college, we have to start to heal from some of the trauma that we have self-imposed on ourselves to not fit the description. I'm realizing now that I have a six-year-old daughter that I was raised most of my life as a black man to do things so I would not fit the description. I was not allowed to wear hooded sweatshirts in my house. I was not allowed to use slang in my house. And it wasn't because it was looked uh, down upon because it was all bad. It's because you cannot present yourself to the world like that. And so the only way that we get to heal is if our white brothers and sisters say, all right, come on, I got it now. I'm gonna fight for you. And so sometimes when we feel like have to do is I got to solve the own trauma that I've experienced from racism and I got to solve the problem for my white brothers and sisters because they're not picking up the load enough to say, hey, get your hands off of this. I'm going to walk with you, but we're going to march and we're going to solve this together at the same time. That's right. Because I mean, the issue,
2: Darren and Johnny both touched on it. Slavery and discrimination and racism in this country has gotten to a point, it has gotten to, is because of the church's neglect of speaking out about these issues. The, the church in America's racism is its baby. It's the original sin of the church in this country. That's also appreciated Jamar Chesney's book, The Color of Compromise, where he goes through and outlines how the church had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to speak out about these things, yet remain silent. And so the issues keep going and keep perpetuating. And again, how did abortion become such a single issue vote? for a lot of Christians in this country. Well, it's because of years and years of talking about it from the pulpit, talking about it in small groups. We have to protect the vulnerable in much the same way. And we talk about, we don't talk about gospel and justice. we talk about they're, they're intertwined. You can't separate the two. God is a just God. And so we need pastors and churches to talk about justice. And I'm not talking about topical. Like I, I grew up as a black man, raised under a black man who preached expositionally. However, when you get to a section of scripture and you want to talk about abortion, I've seen so many of uh, my white uh, uh, friend churches that will pound the pulpit and say, this is an issue we need to stand for. We're not tolerating abortion. Such the same way when you get to countless passages of scripture that talk about justice. What does that mean for modern day America? What does that mean for this church to to. Seek justice. What does that mean to stand alongside and to mourn with and to call it out when we see it? I think this is a church's issue. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. But the church has another chance, another chance in this moment to change trajectory. And if 50 years from now, we're still in the same point to having these same congregations, it's because the predominant church in America remains silent again about these crucial issues that are affecting minorities in this country.
0: Hey, Dave, we're, uh, we're coming up on the end of time here. Do you have a two-minute warning question you want to pitch to the guys and let them
1: respond in turn?
0: Well, I would just love to hear any final thoughts they have for uh, for us, uh, their brothers and sisters within GCC, who is going to be one of the primary target audiences of this uh, podcast, or anything else they'd like to share as we as we wrap up.
1: I was just going to say real quick, man, I I love my brothers in GCC, man. I've gotten so many text messages. I have so many um, friends that I've wept with and cried with um, in GCC who have loved on me and my wife and our family and our church. Um, And I'm just so thankful. So I I just wanted to just hear that, man. If I could just hug all my brothers, I would, because I don't have any doubt that I'm loved by you and the men there and I know Darren and Stephen would say the same man we 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 love you guys um only thing I would just touch on I think that's probably one of the most powerful takeaways with Darren just said I'm actually going to chew on that a little bit just for myself um but um even any in scripture, st- standing standing for justice costs man. It cost Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, "Let my people go." It cost John the Baptist to speak up. It it costs all the prophets their lives to stand for righteousness. You just you just it's just not easy. And I think Darren makes a really good point. I, I, I do think it's really hard for some of my brothers. I'm not just saying in GCC, but in general. Especially if you start to go farther south, um, is is re- you do have to start to choose how far you can sacrifice and go without rustling the feathers of your congregation because it's really hard to disciple. The country needs to be discipled through this wound and it's very raw and nasty and there's a lot of opinions and then you got the news and social media and different news outlets. It is very difficult, but we will not heal if it doesn't happen. We'll just keep talking, but we're, Darren brought up a really good point. I would just, I would just ask my brother to think through um, counting that cost.
2: Amen. And I'll let Darren have the final word on this one, but I will echo. i, I can, That is such a good word. It costs. And I, I agree with John that even when I put that Facebook post out there, so many texts from brothers within the GCC saying, Hey bro, I just read your Facebook post. I'm mourning with you. Uh, you know, what can we do? Love the brothers. And, you know, something that John just touched on, I remember Brian, Brian White posted after Amaya Arbery, he posted a Facebook post and he said, when have we become so scared to call evil, evil? Like, why is this, why is calling evil a political issue? You know, and he made a post and I knew when he posted, I literally stood up and said, this is going to ruffle some feathers. And that type of thing where you're saying, I'm going to stand for justice, even if it costs congregation members, I'm going to stand on the side of righteousness, even if it costs dollars, I'm going to do this because it is a God issue. It's a church issue, and regardless of where it occurs, we should be in a position to have that prophetic voice to call evil, evil, uh, and sin, sin, however it shows up and manifests itself.
3: Yeah, Dave, I'll, I'll be quick. Um, my heart is that we need to be praying as the GCC, and I agree with John. I mean, the GCC has been uh, just a blessing to my heart and relationship for my family, dear friends and brothers. Um, but we need somebody, if not us, we need to be praying for somebody uh, to have a group of people that put everything behind owning this issue. Um, because it's only getting worse. My fear, and it's not only Ahmad Arbery, yesterday it was a delivery truck driver held against his will in Oklahoma because he fit the description. Um, It's the decline of inner cities and gentrification. My feel sometimes, I feel in my soul that we're heading back into a second civil rights movement. Why? Because there's only a certain amount of time before you can allow something to happen to a people so much before they feel as though that the fight has to go to all means necessary. And my white brothers and sisters are the ones who can stop that. Why, because they can get up and wave the flag and say, you are right, we hear you, let's get this right. And and that's just my heart. I just want us to own this and actually go after it like some of the other sins of America that we've gone after. Because if you believe that abortion is a sanctity of life issue, then this by definition is also a sanctity of life issue. And what happens is, if we split those definitions, then there is a um, there's a bias, or a blindness, or a hypo- uh, hypocriticality in our gospel, and we just need to fix that and own
0: that and 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 get and get
3: that moving.
0: Well, guys, thank you for your time. Thank you for your clarity, your sincerity, um, your integrity. And may, may God help us hear the voice of the Spirit in this and take appropriate action for his glory and, and the good of, of the church.